So today in particular, I wanted to talk with Dr. Tarbox about self-injurious behavior. This is something that we get a wide variety of questions about, and I think it's greatly misunderstood. And maybe if you could talk to us a little bit about self-injurious behavior. Sure, sure. So first of all, self-injurious behavior um, involves any kind of behavior that has the potential to produce harm, you know, for the person doing the behavior. Um, and there's a huge range of severity from, um, you know, most self-injurious behaviors, pretty mild, thank goodness. Um, things like maybe slapping yourself or biting yourself that doesn't really produce any real tissue damage, maybe some redness or swelling or bruising, but isn't very, very serious, at least not in its current form, all the way up to the other end of the spectrum, uh, where really in severe cases, there can even be life-threatening SIB. And there have actually been um, individuals on the spectrum who have actually died from their SIB. Th you know, thank goodness that's very, 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 very few, uh, probably less than 1% mm -hmm. uh, of folks with SIB have real serious life-threatening SIB, but there is a, a continuum of severity. It's a spectrum, like everything else like in our, and and we have to be really careful, don't we, that we can't assume that we know what the function of right. the self-injurious behavior is. I'm glad you asked that question. That was the very first thing I was going to say the, okay. ne the next time I had I the opportunity to talk was um, I actually get this all the time from clinicians uh, all over the place. They'll email me and say, hey, I have this kid with this really bad SIB. He's hitting himself. What should I do? And my first question is, well, what do you mean? Uh, it's function, right? It doesn't matter that it's SIB. Of course it matters. You gotta protect the kid and keep mm -hmm. him safe, but that actually has no impact on what treatment you choose. The, the treatment that you choose needs to be based on the function of the behavior or why, the reason why the child is engaging in the self-injurious behavior. Okay, so maybe we could talk uh, about what the usual suspects are sure. with self-injurious behavior and the process by which a trained clinician could figure out which one it is. Right. So um, previously published research have shown that about uh, in at least, I think it's 90 or 95 percent of cases of self-injurious behavior displayed by people with developmental disabilities, including autism, um, it's maintained either by uh, the reason why they're doing it is either to get attention from other people, mm -hmm. to escape from something they don't want to do, usually some kind of de task demands or, you know, it could be academic work, it could be daily living routines, they don't want to take a bath, a shower, whatever, but escape from something they don't want. Um, or um, access to some kind of preferred tangible items or activities, so preferred food, preferred games, toys, um, or automatic reinforcement, which means the behavior produces its own stimulation, its own um, satisfaction, basically. So those four, attention, escape, tangible and automatic um, account for about 90 to 95 percent of cases of self-injurious okay. behavior. So basically if you do an assessment that can identify one of those four, you're going to hit the nail on the head 95 percent of the time. So that's where to start. Okay. And and in this case, is, is it possible that it could be a mixture of the four? Absolutely. Or not? Okay. No, absolutely. In fact, uh, so th that research I was describing states that um, 95 percent of these behaviors um, are categorized as one or more of these four okay. functions. So um, Many behaviors are very common for us to see. Uh, Self-injurious behavior have more than one of those functions. So it's very, very common, for example, uh, in kids on the spectrum to see self-injurious behavior that's maintained by um, access to tangibles. So if there's something that the child really wants and you're insisting on taking it away and the child hits themselves or headbangs or something like that, 
it's pretty likely that the caregiver is going to give that thing back to them to prevent the child from hurting themselves, right? Which yeah. makes sense, except that you actually encourage the behavior to happen more. So tangible is very common, and escape is also very, very common, right? So all the time we see um, folks on the spectrum who, um, you know, the, what they're being asked to do is unreasonable, it's too difficult, it's irritating, it's, it's aversive for whatever reason. You know, the caregivers aren't trying to make the person do something they don't want to do, but it's just, well, okay, this is what you're supposed to do right now. Mm -hmm. The individual doesn't want to do it. They don't have the means to communicate by saying, can I have a break or can I do something else or whatever? And so they do whatever else works. And uh, in many cases, self-injuring is what works to get yeah. that person out of doing what they have to do.